Romans chapter 9, if you take your Bible and join us today, Romans chapter number 9. Some months ago, we began our study in the book of Romans, and then we took some time away, and we have explored other passages in Scripture, but now we jump back into what we look at as a turning point or a second half of the book of Romans. And just by way of brief review, let's look at where have we been and where then are we heading. We began in Romans chapter 1 by looking at the portraits of a godly man. And then in Romans chapter 2, we saw the dark backdrop of sin. Romans chapter 3 and 4, we saw the dawning of deliverance. And then in Romans chapter 5, we saw the gospel of grace. Romans chapter 6, we learned that we were free to live again. Romans chapter 7, we began to understand that there is a war that continues to rage on. And then in Romans chapter 8, we saw the beauty of the summit of God's grace. And now we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And here we're going to explore what I believe is a glimpse into the very heart of God. Have you ever wondered if someone truly loved you? Was their love sincere? Was it genuine? You may have wanted to believe it, but you questioned the authenticity of their love. One of the first verses that you may have learned in Scripture, in fact, let's quote it together. It's John 3.16. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a beautiful glimpse, again, into the heart of God regarding his love for a lost world. And we start to understand very early on that God does love mankind and therefore he gave. The truth of the matter is love does what is necessary for the object of its affection. When I am in love, and I have an object that is the, the focus of my love, then we begin to take necessary steps to meet the need for the object of our affection, for our love. And one of the things that Paul begins to do in, in sometimes rather technical ways, in ways that, that often have confounded or perplexed us, is he begins to, to unfold the heart of God doing what is necessary regarding the objects of his affection. Today, as we return to the book of Romans, we're going to see that the object of his affection are people just like you and me. And his desire is going to captivate the entirety of him. Today, we also see that Paul's desire is a reflection of God's. God has this desire for mankind. He gave himself that, that whosoever would might come. 
because he so loved the world. And now we start to see a heart beating inside the apostle Paul that is such that it becomes this reflection of the very heart of God. Paul's desire, his burden, his his plea is that Israel, his fellow kinsman, Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, an Israelite indeed, he wants to see not only all mankind, but his own kind in particular. He wants to see lost Israel saved. And he desires this, as is the title of our message today, with all his heart. With all his heart. Today, as we turn to the book of Romans, we begin this new section in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're going to see in Romans chapter 9 that we start to see God's dealing with Israel in their past. Romans chapter 10, we primarily see his dealings with them in the present. And then, of course, in Romans chapter 11, we'll see God's dealings with Israel in the future. Let's begin today in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, where we're about to see an incredible statement of longing and love. An incredible statement of longing and of love. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish, this is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Before Paul gives them his theology, the Apostle Paul gives them his heart. The statement is to some so well known it almost becomes trite and I don't mean it to be so. But we've oftentimes used the, the old expression that, that another person may not care how much you know until they know how much you care. I found in my own life personally that oftentimes I, I want to reveal that I know something that you may not know. And I have a desire to make sure that, that you get it and that you get it right because I know this and If there were ever a great mind regarding the theology and and how that is presented in the beautiful picture book of the Old Testament and realized in the person of Jesus Christ, and now ours under this new covenant, the Apostle Paul understood the theology of God. Who better than this Hebrew of the Hebrews to be able to say, all of this doesn't end here. It is the picture of the one who is the end of it all, Jesus Christ. And yet the Apostle Paul, before he goes on this powerful treatise of theology, before he does that, the Apostle Paul begins to just bear his heart. It's one of the reasons why I believe that relationships are so vitally important in communicating the love of God. 
Oh, oh, I know that God doesn't always give us the opportunity to have this personal relationship before the gospel is shared. But certainly a person, for them to understand why should I be moved toward the gospel, because they begin by seeing the goodness and the mercy and the long-suffering aspect of a loving God. And we as representatives, as, as the ambassadors of Almighty God, how vitally important it is for us to at least have opportunity when God presents it to bear our heart before we bear his truth. What Paul is about to say is so incredible. I mean, wow, did you just say what I think you said? What he's about to say is so incredible. Paul actually calls three witnesses to the witness stand to attest to the veracity of this claim. Notice the witnesses that he calls to the stand. The first one he calls to the stand is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I say the truth in Christ. He says, listen, with, with Jesus as my witness, oftentimes today we will, with our hand on the Bible, give some, some testimony to the authenticity of our statement. Paul says, I call Jesus Christ to the witness stand. But he doesn't stop there. He says, okay, Christ is bearing witness to what I'm about to say, that it is true. And then he goes beyond that and he says, I bring my own conscience to the witness stand. Now, a conscience is something that Paul doesn't treat lightly. In fact, throughout his writings on multiple occasions, Paul says, my own conscience, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure conscience, excuse me, out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. He says, listen, here's my conscience. And then the third witness that he calls to the stand, not only Jesus Christ, his own conscience, but Paul now calls the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Paul is saying my conscience and the Holy Spirit, they both agree on this matter. Do you know, oftentimes you and I might be prone to say something like this, well, my conscience doesn't bother me about this. Well, make sure it doesn't bother the Holy Spirit. Our conscience can be seared. Our conscience can, can have this hardening. It can have this callousing. But the Apostle Paul says, my conscience and the Holy Spirit both bear witness to the same. And some may even ask, why three witnesses? Because he wants us to know he genuinely means what he says. Now remember, before Paul is speaking theologically, he is speaking emotionally. Sometimes we try to remove emotion from our faith. Well, no, I just, I believe the... Listen, Paul bears his heart. He pours out his emotion. Before he gets to the theology of Romans 9, he gets to the emotion of his own heart. And I will also acknowledge, I do believe that Paul knows what he's about to say is not possible. You say, well, why is he saying it? Because if it were possible, he says, I would do this. I would go to this length for my fellow kinsmen for the Israelites that are mine. What an amazing longing and love. He is saying, I wish myself accursed so that you would be accepted. Wow. I wish myself accursed so that you could be accepted. Now I'm gonna bear my heart for just a moment. I don't know that I have ever 
come to the point where I could say with, with those three as my witness, Jesus Christ, my own conscience, and the Holy Spirit, if they were called to the witness stand, could I say myself that I wish myself accursed for the salvation of my kinsmen? Here's, with God as my witness, Jesus, my conscience, the Holy Spirit, I can say there are those that I would die for, but that's not what Paul's saying. You might be able to say, I would die for you. I would die for, I can remember my dad when I'm a kid, my dad saying, listen, there's not one of you that I wouldn't die for, and I believe him. And you know, there are people that I would say, listen, I would lay down my life for them. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I wish myself accursed. Do you know what the Greek word there is? Anathema. No hope of redemption. That I would be eternally separated from God. The love that he has for his fellow Israelites is such that it takes him to the place where he says, I wish myself anathema so that you might come to know the love of God you say where does this come from Matthew Matthew 5 beginning in verse number 43 and 44 think through this you have heard that it hath been said thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy but I say unto you love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you now we've got not gotten to the place where Paul is yet but we have this beginning like wow to love people who don't love me to to desire good for them who desire harm or ill to me Usually, I function easily on a reciprocal basis. You do something to me, I'm going to do that. Listen, you can start this, but somebody else can finish it. This is not what he's saying is is typical of the love of Christ. He goes on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? This is just normal if you just return what someone's given. Now this kind of love seems to come from someplace other than earthly love. It comes from only one vine. This vine produces the most beautiful fruit In Galatians 5.22, we begin this passage by reading, but the fruit, the evidence, the result of the Spirit is agape. It is heaven-sent love. From the time Paul first trusted Christ, his Jewish kin tried to take his life. Early on, wherever Paul goes, it seems like there's another group that's trying to subvert not only the gospel, but the apostle Paul. Over and over and over again, attempts on his life are made by his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites. Where does this kind of love come from? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 15, Paul says this, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul says, I'm in this strange place. My love for you just continues to grow. My heart can't contain it. I love you, but the more I love you, the the less I am loved. 
Where does this come from? It does not come from within us. It comes from him, Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is the kind of love that we see exemplified in scripture. While hanging on the cross for sin, not his own. It is the love that brings Jesus to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you understand, do we grasp the torment Christ is under when he says, Father, forgive them? Where does that come from? This is the love of Christ. It's the same kind of love that Stephen, the first martyr, demonstrates when the first martyr in Acts 7, verse number 60 says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When I measure myself against this kind of love, I have to say, Lord, I don't have that in me. The only means by which this kind of love is possible is if you produce something in me that is literally out of this world. It's the kind of longing and love that we see from the heart of Christ when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as an hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And you would not. And before we move past this, let's not think that Paul is just using some grandiose expression only because it's not possible for him to be accursed. He is actually repeating the expression used by Moses, obviously many centuries before. Moses utters this same kind of prayer in Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, when he says, yet now, in his prayer to God, yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, notice the, the, the exclusive dash in scripture. There's always a next word, but Moses can't even find words that would overflow his heart. Oh, oh God, yet not now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, oh, God, I don't even have words for this. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses, do you know what you're saying? Wait, don't say that. He is actually calling on the nature and character of a God who does not change. He's saying, oh God, I know who you are. You're long-suffering. You're merciful. You're full of compassion. Oh God, would you forgive the people? This is the burden of Moses. It is the burden of Paul. It is the life of Jesus. This is again how Paul can say, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. Yes, there are many that would die for another, but Paul is saying, I would become anathema on your behalf. I would suffer your hell if only you would come to Christ. As I am writing these words, as I'm preparing for this message, the only thing that kept running and flooding through my mind is the song, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse 
for my soul, for my soul to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Who became the accused, the accursed? Who is it that has the, the, the now, the experience that he's never experienced before of God being rent from God? And he cries out, my God, my God, not my father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Do you have a desire to see the lost come to know Jesus Christ? And, and my answer to that is a collective yes, we do. May God continue to deepen the burden in our hearts that we might see lost people with such a compelling burden for them to come to him that we'd say, oh God, God, I can't even express, I know it's not possible because I am secure in you, eternally secure in you, but my love for them is so great that I would do what is necessary for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. The place he begins in this turning point in the book of Romans, and quite a turn it is, is he begins with an incredible statement of longing and love. But he doesn't stay there. He goes on now as he begins to walk us through this passage of Scripture. He's borne his heart. It'll be seen all throughout all three of these chapters. But he now begins to introduce us not just to his emotion, an emotional aspect, but now a theological aspect. It, it does become for us at times a little like, whoa, wow, I have to, I got to pause and think. I, I have to start comparing Scripture and Scripture and what does this mean? And well, this is hard to attain unto. As we begin with an incredible statement of longing and love, we now see an insightful statement of logic and liability. Ah, here it comes. The Apostle Paul that we've seen all throughout this book of Romans. We start to see the logic pour out. Oh, we've seen his love, but now the logic. And with the logic that Paul begins to introduce to us, we don't only see, oh, that's, that's logical, that's logical. Now I also see because of the logic, he is building some liability. Okay, who's going to deny that? Okay, I see this, 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 this. If those things are all true, ooh, wow. There's some liability that goes along with this. Look in your Bibles at verses four and five. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service to God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Having expressed his love, Paul builds this logical case and the liability that comes along with it. And here's what he does. He says, okay, my heart's desire is for Israel. And Israel, he's saying, listen, if you're a Jew looking through this, or if you're a Gentile in Rome and you're looking at this, he says, okay, let's think about what does God do for the Jew? What has he done? And he just starts to walk through it. We'll walk through this briefly, but boy, he gives this powerful list of eight things. Hey, listen, here's what you have. 
It's just logical. He lays it out wisely. The first thing he says is you have the adoption. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? This speaks of the special relationship that Israel has with God and the inheritance that comes along with it. And then he says, and the glory. This is speaking about the visible glory of God. Do you remember when they're being led through the wilderness, the glory of God reveals itself as this pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And then what the, uh, the, the, the rabbinical scribes, the priests, what they would also refer to as the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory. This is the glory that would rest over the tabernacle. This is the glory that would then one day fill the temple. He says, to you belongeth the glory. And then he goes on, he says, and the covenants. The covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that exists for Jacob and and for Israel, the, the Davidic covenant, and then the covenants, the promises regarding the millennial kingdom, the future covenants. The law, he says, and to you have been given the law. This, of course, was the Mosaic law, which is the greatest legislative code ever given and the foundation for all true legal codes ever since. This was given to the Jews the service of God. This is the opportunity to oversee and lead in the ceremonial worship of the one true God of the world. The promises. Couldn't we spend a long time on the promises given to the people of Israel? These are the great promises. Promises regarding the maps, that would be the land. Promises regarding the Messiah. Promises regarding the millennial kingdom and so many more. And then he says, and to you, the fathers, the fathers, these are the patriarchs. These are those people that have become for the nation of Israel, like their national treasure, their glorious stories, the the heritage of the Jewish people. And then he saves the best for last. Think about all that you have been given. He's laying out a logical case. And the Messiah, the Messiah the greatest privilege of them all. Romans chapter nine, verse number five, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. The Messiah, Jesus, he's a Jew. He's born to a Jewish mother. He's raised in a Jewish home. He has a Jewish education. He's taken to the temple like a 12-year-old, even today with their bar mitzvah. He's taken to the temple at 12 years of age. He has all the markings of a Jewish upbringing. Who is this? This is the Messiah, Jesus, who by his own admission was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How gracious God has been to his people, the people of his choosing. After all he has done for them, one might rightly conclude logically that there is some liability. Who wouldn't come running to him? In a sense, Paul is saying, you be the judge. Is Israel liable? Certainly God has invited Israel to judge themselves. 
In fact, he does so throughout scripture. In one instance, Isaiah chapter five, verse number three, after God says, here's what I've done for Israel. I set them up as a fruitful vineyard. I put them on the right hill. I gave them the right sun. I gave them the right fertilization. I gave them the right vine. I've done everything for Israel. And then he says, oh, now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you. You be the judge. Paul just begins Romans chapter 9 by listing these eight things that belong to Israel. He says, you got this, 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 this. He says, now you be the judge. Hey, let me ask you, if you started to unfold your own little list of what God's done for you, what might that look like? Has he exposed you to truth? Has he surrounded you with people who continually point him to you? Has every day of your life he given you another sermon just through the skies? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Every day, day unto day, utter a speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. I don't care where you come from, what nationality you are. There is no speech nor language where their voice, the voice of creation, is not heard. Has God been good to you? I mean, has God been to you what we sometimes casually answer far better than you deserve? Let's break that statement down just momentarily. What is it that we actually do deserve? Sometimes I know we do it. I do the same. But we answer when when something good happens, we say, well, God's been good as if God could be something other than what he is. Has God been good to you? just like he has been to the people of Israel. Well, there is some logic that goes along to the liability. God, you've been good. What have I done with that goodness? Well, we see he begins with this incredible statement of longing and love. Then we have this insightful statement of logic and liability. And now we get into what we'll call this illustrative statement of lordship and liberty. This illustrative statement of lordship and liberty. Okay, now, everyone, let's try to, to, I don't know, do something to just rouse yourself for a moment, okay? Um, Don't pinch your neighbor, but pinch yourself right now, okay? We get into a section. I said don't pinch your neighbor, okay? (laughs) We get into this section now in Romans where we do find it is challenging. In fact, when we look at this passage of Scripture now, there have been certainly debates and ongoing arguments. These are complicated waters. They're passages of Scripture that have been interpreted and misinterpreted, completely avoided. So as we tread through these waters, let's do so carefully. Let's also do so gracefully. And as we do so, may we find that we have been insightfully helped through what God the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, has left for us. Look at verse number six. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Now, Paul's anticipating, maybe people are going to say, well, God, your plan failed because Israel has rejected you. Not all of Israel. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, 
they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Again, he's leading us through these these challenging, sometimes troublesome waters. Let's notice three things here about God's lordship and what we might also say would be man's liberty. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. The first thing that we notice about this passage, and we'll see it all through Romans chapter 9, is God is sovereign. Exclamation point. God is sovereign. Now, if you want a simple working definition of sovereignty, it is God has a right to do what he wants to do with what is his. Do you agree with that? God has a right to do what he wants to do with what is his. Okay, now don't get far from that. Don't stray from that. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. We teach that. We preach that. We sing about that. We amen it. Well, what does that mean? He has a right to do what he wants to do with what is his. What is his? The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Does God have a right to do what he wants to do? The answer is absolutely. Remember, we've already seen that God's promises haven't failed. Israel had. What God sets out to do, God does. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul begins to reveal God's sovereignty. Now, he's still speaking nationally, and this is an important key to unlock Romans chapter 9. He's speaking nationally. Now, he can speak personally, and certainly he does, but notice the national significance. He does so. Look at verse number 7, chapter 9. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He's speaking of the nation of Israel. Remember Abraham's seed, his offspring. They're one day going to be, per the promise of God, as the sands of the sea. Abraham, your offspring, your seed as the stars of the heavens. Who is this seed? The nation of Israel. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, Genesis 21, 12, and God said unto Abraham, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Thy nation will be called. He's saying this is your offspring. He's not speaking exclusively about Isaac, but rather of those that are represented under Isaac. He continues to speak nationally throughout this chapter. In verse number 8, he uses terms like the children of the flesh, not the child of, the children. He talks about the children of the promise, not the child of. Again, would be a person, not a nation or a people group. Again, these nations are all God's sovereign choice. He has a right to choose. By the way, he can do whatever he wants to do. He is God and you and I are not. So Jacob, what does he become? The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Many times people find this verse problematic. Let's take this in context. First of all, of whom is Paul writing? He's writing about the nations. He's already established the seed, the offspring of, uh, listen, under Jacob, uh, who's going to become Israel? This is who your seed will be named after. Uh, Abraham, this is who I'm referencing. Now we get to, okay, Jacob, his seed, his nation have I loved. I've chosen. Mm, Esau have I hated. Jacob, you get to be. Esau, you do not get to be. Well, that's not fair. Fairness has nothing to do with sovereignty. 
God is sovereign. He has a right to do what he wants to do with what is his. He can say, yeah, you're going to be the father of this nation. Why? Because he's more righteous than another? No, but because God is sovereign. God sets up David as king. He puts another not as king. He sets up Pharaoh as the ruler and another he does not. Why? Because God is sovereign. Remember, people from any nation can become a spiritual Jew, Esau and Ishmael included. Paul states in verse number 24, even us whom he hath called not, on, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Romans 10, 12, he says this in the next chapter. For there's no difference between the Jew and the great Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Of course, Paul's going to have to continue to use words that resonate with us, and he does. He uses words like whosoever all throughout these three chapters of Scripture, and he's going to continue to do so. What do we have to first understand? God is sovereign. What do we also understand? Man is responsible. Man is responsible, and he uses an illustration from the life of Pharaoh. Look at verse number 17, Romans chapter 9. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. I believe God uses Pharaoh, certainly based on his own foreknowledge, but also on Pharaoh's own rebellion. So God exalted him. That is, he raised him up. Some people say like, oh, he raised him from a child. No, 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 no. God exalts Pharaoh to a position where Pharaoh's heart is going to teach everybody an important lesson. So let's take the, 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 the term Pharaoh and the vessel of wrath in context. Like I raised him up a vessel of wrath. Albert Eidersheim was a Jewish scholar. He lived in the 1800s. Listen to what he wrote. Thus, before the ten plagues and when Aaron proved his divine mission, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, that is, by himself. He goes on and he says, similarly, after each of the first five plagues, the hardening is also expressly attributed to Pharaoh himself. Like, oh, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Say, where do we go from there? Well, only when we still see resisting after the sixth plague do we read for the first time that the Lord made firm the heart of Pharaoh. In other words, God said, is this what you want? Fine, I'll cooperate. Even so, space for repentance must have been left for after the seventh plague, we read again that Pharaoh made heavy his heart. And it is only after the eighth plague that the hardening is exclusively ascribed to God. Do you know what's also interesting? When you start to look at the two Hebrew words used for hardening, almost to a one, there's a different word used when Pharaoh hardens his heart and the word used for God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's as if Pharaoh is saying, I am going to rebel against you. I harden my heart. And it's as if God says, okay, I am confirming that which you are responsible for. Remember in the analogy of the potter, Paul's referencing scripture has much to say. Again, Paul wrote, nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? He's sovereign. Why have you done this? 
When we go back and see the scripture Paul is referencing from Jeremiah, it says, Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, that seemed good to the potter to make it. Sovereignty. You say, well, what about liberty? You start in verse number five. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with thee? As you, as, can I not do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. At what time, at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it? He's speaking nationally. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Clearly God's sovereignty can be seen, but continue to notice man's liberty and responsibility. Verse number 11 of the same chapter. Now therefore go to speak to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus saith the Lord, behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. He's saying, listen, you have a responsibility to turn. So we see God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And the way we will close this message today is not only is God sovereign and not only is man responsible, I close with God wants you to be saved. What about election? God wants you to be saved. Well, what about the called, the chosen? What of the elect? God wants you to be saved. Are you thirsty? He invites you to come. Are you a whosoever? He invites you to come. What if God in Romans 9:22, willing to show his wrath, to make his power known, endued with much long suffering? Did you notice that? Endued with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. You say, well, there you go. That's, that's not a verse that talks of God's longing. No, please know it is. Some might say, well, this, this is not a demonstration of God's desire for man to be saved. Well, of course it is. Why else would it mention God's long suffering? Even to these vessels that are not created for destruction, it says they're, they're fit vessels to be destroyed. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Despisest thou of Romans 2 the riches and goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. This is exactly what Pharaoh did. He treasured up for himself wrath. I, I know we're long, but please hear this. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. Yet two kinds of vessels. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. He wasn't a vessel of honor, fit for destruction. And he says, now here's your invitation from a sovereign God. Would you become a vessel of honor? I'm the only one who can make you so. 
It means that you and I can be saved. Notice how this chapter closes and how the first one, the the next chapter begins. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He does not say my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may have always been vessels of mercy. Otherwise, there is no hope for them. My heart's desire, my prayer for Israel is, oh God, that they might be saved. Were they chosen? Yes. Does anyone come to Christ who chooses him? Yes. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit, under the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, peace be multiplied. Oh, does God elect? Yes. Does man choose? Yes. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, and some would say a strong Arminian. <laughs> D.L. Moody used to say, imagine a great mansion. And over the door of that beautiful mansion, It is a sign that is posted so that all could see it. And it simply says, whosoever will. And as you stand there and you, you see this invitation into this beautiful mansion, you say, I will. And so you walk and open the door and you come inside. And as you pass through, you look at the splendors that await inside and you turn and you see the door and over the door chosen from the foundations of the world. What does God invite you to do? To be saved. Well, well, does that mean that I'm elect? Well, certainly, according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, then he's manipulating me. Well, then don't be saved. Well, that's not fair. Then be saved, okay? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is God? God is absolutely sovereign. What is man? Absolutely responsible. You say, how do those two go together? They do so in the heart and mind of God. And there, I allow it to rest. If you're not saved today, I do know one thing that God desires for you. And that is you would recognize yourself as a whosoever and that you would come.